Oh, wow. Dean Taylor, thank you so much for joining us here. I'm John Sherwood. This is johnsherwood.com, where we try to fuel faith in the 21st century. Uh, I'm so excited, uh, Dean, to be able to have this conversation with you, to be able to introduce you to uh, those that are attached to johnsherwood.com and, and be able to talk about this topic of Jesus and nonviolence, uh, about just war theory. Uh, Dean, you wrote a book called A Change of Allegiance, um, where you discuss how you went from being enlisted in the U.S. military to really wrestling with some of Jesus' teachings in the scriptures, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, and this idea of loving our enemies. And it led you to some pretty radical conclusions and pretty radical actions, I think most would say. And so I'm excited to be able to jump into this conversation with you today. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much, Brother John. And I, and I appreciate so much uh, already our short time together and hearing about your church and what God's doing in your life and your ministry there. I just pray God's grace upon you and continue to, to, to walk in that anointing. So God be with you. Thank you. It's a blessing to meet you. Yes, absolutely. And just to give some context here for the viewers, you know, Dean, you and I are just meeting each other. Um, and I'm going to let you share a little bit about your background in a moment. But just so people can know how we got connected, um, you know, I have been mentored and taught by a man named Douglas Jacoby, um, who teaches out of Lincoln. And he introduced me to David Berceau, who is uh, a writer and a teacher in the Anabaptist movement and the Mennonite Church. And uh, I got influenced by Berceau when I uh, read his book, Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up, many years ago. And eventually I got uh, turned on to a YouTube video, um, an academic debate that was taking place there in Boston, where you're located, with Mr. Berceau, yourself, and a couple of other scholars, uh, Peter Kreft and others, about the topic of pacifism and just war. It's a video called It's Just War. And uh, I will post that link here in the description, but uh, I, I was heavily influenced and impacted and really kind of shocked and rocked by that video the first time I saw it, where you guys are presenting uh, what you, I believe, would call a traditional non-violence uh, position and theology uh, based on Jesus' teachings and the writings of the New Testament, and really even for the first several hundred years of the early church fathers. Um, and then the other side was presenting what's called just war theory uh, that was introduced a little bit later in church history, you know, around 300, 400 AD, and uh, has really been the prevailing thought for most evangelical Christians that there are times where, where war is justified and it's just in God's eyes and that it is right and righteous to use violence, though it may be the last resort to use violence to be able to vanquish evil is kind of the synopsis of how I would, you know, in a very brief way, represent just war theory. And you guys dialogued about this and, and went back and forth and tried to, um, in a, in a uh, uh, gracious and Christ-loving way, you know, challenge each other's thoughts. And um, I really appreciated that. I've, I've watched that uh, video many times now. And so thank you for all your work there. And you are also president of Sattler College. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So yeah, you've got a few things going on in your life. So tell me a little bit about how you went from an enlisted military man to getting connected with the Anabaptist faith tradition to now becoming a president of a college in that tradition. <laughs> oh, my. That's uh, another whole. Uh, I've always people have been saying, Dean, when's uh, booked part two? Mm. You know, the, the first book ends out with us getting out of the army. And there's been such a uh, quite a journey afterwards. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, thank you very much. I also am a professor of historical theology here mm. and uh, at Sattler College. And one of the things that I bring out to my students a lot, uh, as we, as and now in the context of us discussing this just war theory and all these things, but something that I bring out commonly to our to my students is that if an argument has lasted more than five hundred years. It's not stupid. Mm. <laughs> so mm. so I, I don't think that the just war theory and all these types of things are, are stupid arguments. Um, I don't think Augustine was stupid. I don't think Luther was stupid. I think these guys were brilliant, actually. And so one of the nice things that, that I have found and why I've had such an affinity for the historic faith of the early Christians and for the, for the church is that historical theology, in my opinion, kind of gives you like the... Uh, um, like if you have pure science, you have experimental science. So you have these great ideas and you get to see how that works out. And as you see how that works out, we're able to, to look at that. And so some of these things that I think that have been great ideas played out by Augustine and, and other people in the, in the fifth century um, played out, in my opinion, not so great. And we've lost something from the early church. And what would you say is what has been forgotten from the early church? How would you encapsulate that? Here's what it is. John, have you ever been in a foreign embassy? Have you ever, ever, ever been in an American embassy in a foreign country? I don't believe I have, no. It's really a remarkable experience. So like I was in Bulgaria, I've done one in Athens and, in, and, and also in London. And when you go into a, an embassy in a foreign country, American embassy, it's weird, like particularly the one that stands out in my mind is the one I was in in Bulgaria, in Sofia. Mm. And you're going in there and, you know, it's kind of communist still there. You know, it looks weird and people are all over the place speaking Bulgarian and all that, you know, and you go in there and so you walk in the door. There's a guy named John or Frank. They're eating hot dogs or listening to American pop music. And you're like, wow, I'm like in a little America here in the middle of Bulgaria. Right. That is early Christianity. Hmm. That the kingdom of heaven is like an embassy that's come down for us to live out the, the kingdom of God, the teachings of Jesus on earth now. And so when you're looking at that and you're comparing what happened between the old covenant and the new covenant and how Jesus came to usher this in, we are supposed to live out to the whole world what the whole world will eventually, from the rising of the sun till it's coming down, the Lord's name will be praised. But we are now the embassy of heaven. Hmm. And that concept, I think, um, kind of permeates putting the, the teachings of Jesus into our, into our, our world today. And it's, so it's in, on Judgment Day, <laughs> it should be like uh, people are able to say, oh, so that's what they were talking about. Hmm. because one day Christ will reign from the rising of the sun till it's going down. In the beginning, it was a garden. In the end, it shall be the rising of the sun till it's going down. But now it is an embassy. It's a, it's a seed. It's a city. But we are, there is a real kingdom, and we have a real king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Um, so let me, ask, that, okay, let, go me, ahead. let me ask real quick then. Okay, so if we're supposed to be this embassy, right, this, this ambassador yeah. and and community of ambassadors for Jesus, where people can walk out of the world, like you did out of B Bulgaria, into this American embassy, and they can walk into a city of heaven through a community yeah. of people. Yeah. What yeah, does yeah. that have to do with nonviolence? What does that have to do with just war theory? Like, what, like how, how does that work, right? Where's the intersection point? And if I were to 
pick up a Bible and I just started reading the Sermon on the Mount and I go to something like Matthew 5, right? And as I'm flipping there, I'm thinking about Jesus saying, you know, um, that he's to, we're to love our enemies, right? That um, you shouldn't murder, but rather, in fact, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister has committed murder in their heart and so on and so forth. Like, what does that look like in real life as we're walking around, working, playing, you know, yeah. having yeah. families, you know, like as we're living yeah. our lives, what does it look like to be this embassy of this kingdom of Jesus when it comes to nonviolence? Great, great question, John. You know, it's in the 1980s when I was in my generation growing up, um, there was sort of a real common dispensationalism that took the teachings of Jesus and kind of stuck it into a millennium or into heaven or something like that. I think nowadays that's becoming less popular and I'm excited about that. Even the neo-reformed guys and that kind of a thing have, have downplayed that kind of a thing because it's ridiculous. I mean, like, how hard is it to love your enemies in heaven? You know what I mean? It's like these teachings were meant for us to bring and usher in into this world. But you brought up a whole good point when you come to the Sermon on the Mount. So imagine you do this. So let's let's come into the. So God came to earth and preached a sermon. Okay. So I don't know. I'm I'm sure these days you download a lot of sermons. I do. I love. I love classics. Uh, sermon Index is one of my, uh, there's a shout out for a freebie for Sermon Index. I love those old Leonard Ravenhill and all those guys. But if there's any sermon that we should like be downloading, it's the Sermon on the Mount that God came and preached. And so, but in that, there's so much packed into that from Old Testament prophecy, the Isaiah passages, maybe we'll have time to touch on and how that comes in and how this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But imagine this. You open up the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, mm-hmm. and all those things that are in there, permanence of marriage, non-squaring of votes, the not, um, the, the not taking people to, to, to sue, the uh, radical views of economics, um, the non-resistance, the loving of enemies, not neighbors, but enemies, mm-hmm. neighbors too, but of right. enemies, and all those things. And let's say we take all those commands of Jesus Christ, of God, and we create for ourselves a church that goes out of its way to do everything completely opposite. So God says we're going to have uh, loving your enemy as a command of the new kingdom. Um, all right, we're going to have, I don't know, Christians in the military. If God says marriage is permanent, we're going to say, okay, we're going to just forget about that and just divorce from marriage like the world. If we're going to have, uh, you know, you, you go on to that. And everything he commands us. We do just the opposite. And what I realized when I was a soldier in Germany over 30 years ago, when I had that, I said, if we do just the opposite, we end up with the modern American church. And that's a problem. Mm. The modern American church looks like the complete opposite of what Jesus Mm. commanded us in in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. That should at least bother us. That should at least bother us. And so... I began to look at this and I asked the question and I asked all of the viewers to ponder this just because if you do, if you get this one thing, I believe it'll be like in Matthew 13, that all those examples of the kingdom of heaven that are starting small and growing 11 or a seed or interest coin or whatever. If you get this one point, what if Jesus really meant all those words? Now, I, I, what if Jesus really meant every word he said? And so as I ponder that, and, and I, again, I, I'm not done with this. 
Right. You never get done. Jesus, Jesus puts his evangel- evangelizing message into two words, but those two words are really stacked. Right. Follow me. Follow me. Right. And so I'm, I'm continuing on this. You know, I, I still fall at my face on the, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, give to anyone who asks that, you know, no anger, no, no lusts, no nothing, that, that it's a continual working of us, of, of God's grace in our life that has to make those things manifest. But if you allow it to start, at least start, I'm going to take Jesus at his, at his face value. Right. He meant what he said. It begins to be like 11. And I think Matthew 13, this whole concept of the 11 begins to grow and grow and grow in you to, it messes you up. In a it good does way. mess you up, right? It messes you up. I, mean, I was sharing with you before the call that, you know, yeah. I got exposed to you crazy people and <laughs> God used some crazy people to act like 11 in my heart as I went back to the scriptures and I thought, wait yeah. a minute. This messes me up, you know, and it makes me have really radical yeah. uh, thoughts and positions that are not common about how this works out in real life. What yeah. what will I do if someone breaks into my home and wants to harm me or my family, right? Yeah. What do I think about the responsibility yeah. of Christians in the world to to forcefully and violently resist evil? dictatorships, you know, World War II and the German regime is an often quoted one in this line of dialogue, right? What will I do? You know, I remember in my first several years as a Christian, I owned a gun and Mm -hmm. I was reasonably proficient with it. I came Mm -hmm. from a very violent background, right? Mm -hmm. And then I started to really wrestle with what exactly am I allowed to do with this? Other than maybe target practice or Maybe if I had to hunt game to feed my family, you know, which, you know, I prefer to go to the supermarket for that kind of thing. But, you know, what could I really do in terms of self-defense if the scriptures say, I think of first Peter, right, where he says that Christ left you an example Mm. that you should suffer even at the hands of your enemies. And I thought, what am I going to do with this gun? So I haven't owned a firearm for many, many years now. Because I'm thinking about that outworking and how this actually applies to real life. It will mess you up. So what would you say? Because I imagine a lot of my audience, they, they've never really thoroughly considered this. They've never really wrestled with the theological implications of something mm-hmm. where Jesus says, love your enemies. Mm-hmm. And that he actually not only taught, but he, he um, exemplified Mm-hmm. This idea when he yeah. didn't resist, yeah. he didn't resist yeah. the Romans who came to take him, an innocent man. He didn't defend his own life, and he told his disciples not to defend his life or their own, exactly. and told Peter to put back his sword. And they were all like, "Dude, peace! I'm out of here." Uh-uh. No, 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 right, right. 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 And then right. obviously they come back and it messed them up too. You know, it messed them up too. <laughs> Amen. And, and then yeah. later come back Peter himself and later write. Christ left us an example to follow, that we would suffer even at the hands of evil, and that when we suffer for doing good, it's glorifying and honor to God. It will mess you up. What would you say to somebody who's listening? They maybe are just, the the leaven is just getting put in the dough. Yeah, yeah, amen. And they're wrestling with it. What I have found for myself and others is that immediately we go to the, the practical extremes of, the robber that yeah, yeah. comes in the house of the evil dictator. What do we do with him? Uh, you know, there's a few classic things that we tend to go to 
where we think surely Jesus can't mean this in this situation. Yeah. 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 What would you say to them? How would you respond to that kind of inquiry? It's a great question. And, and no matter what you say in, in, in theology about just war theories and things, and we have some important things that we should mention, but in general, um, everything comes down to this point. And, and um, I remember when I was first putting my book together, I was putting all this theology and all these things together, and I was sitting down at the table, and when this young lady was staying with us, she said, well, what would you do? And I realized, I don't have a chapter. I think it's chapter eight in my book. This is the most important thing. Right. It comes down to that. And, and here's the thing. Most of the time, the, the dialogue tries to pit us to either sitting there passively watching your wife get raped or shooting them and, def- and defending atomic warfare. And so that it somehow gets put into the other ends of the extreme. Um, I would say that this, I, look at the Jesus, I look at Jesus as the ultimate example of his own interpretation of his, of his, of his teachings. Right. And so I would not have a problem putting myself in harm's way to protect right. my wife, to protect my children. We're not, you know, we're not, we're supposed to be there. But the thing that we have to get though, with Jesus's teaching, and, and this is not easy, is that it's, I, I look at the passage in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, hmm. for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's right. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I would say that actually any teaching of Jesus, any of them, right. if you're trying to read those teachings and still just have your nice American life, somehow you can't do it. Right. And that many times, often, actually, he calls us to something greater. Mm. And I don't know how to... to I, so the, the bottom line that I'm saying, and as, and as we look through the saints and people of God through history. I'm not saying you have to sit there and do nothing, Hmm. but I am saying that God does call the church many times to suffer martyrdom. And it is in that martyrdom that we're standing for the teachings of Christ, um, that God's kingdom is, is established. One of my favorite quotes is by, um, Tertullian. And, uh, let me read you this quote. I think I have it here. Um, okay. And for our audience, who is Tertullian? And how okay, is yeah. name so hard to say? Um, Tertullian was the writer in the early church. Looking for my quote here. There it is. Okay. He was a writer in the early church and he was writing around the year 150 or so, 190. And so one of the things, maybe we should back up a little bit, but one of the things that I've loved to see uh, is how the earliest Christians interpreted some of these difficult questions. And let, let's go back there right after I give you this quote. Um, but speaking about Christians, um, but what do you do if you're, if you're, you know, with this, this martyrdom that's being killed and this types of a thing, that as we look at through the, through the line of church history, and particularly the first 300 years of the church, when they were unanimously standing for these just simple teachings of Jesus Christ, Tertullian put it this way when arguing about it. He says, when the the idea of you killing us, he said, it is bait that Mm. wins men for our school. It's bait that wins men for our school. The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. This is many times interpreted the blood of the martyrs 
is the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. This is the actual quote. And this, this idea that there's something in the cross, there's something in Jesus's way that is contagious mm. and it's powerful and it unlocks a force that's actually bait uh, of people coming um, in many different, in many in, 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 generation after gen generation in many different ways. But let me step back just a little bit um, talking about the early church and the scriptures and that kind of a thing. And it might help a little bit. First of all, when I started reading through this, I was a, a soldier in the army and, and came on these teachings. This was just when the Persian Gulf War was, was starting to heat up a little bit. And as I began this, first thing I did is started reading some, some pacifist type of thing. And I, we don't have time in this uh, podcast, but I think a lot, sometimes pacifism messes up the concept of a clear two kingdoms. Mm. The early church would have clearly believed that God has established a government of this earth. Romans 13, they do not try to explain away, but that we are in a different kingdom within this kingdom. And so Romans 13, um, they would have had no problem with calling the minister, a minister of the, the, the ruler, a minister of God. Now it's important to keep in mind here, Paul was talking about Nero. Hmm. He's calling him that, the minister of God. So this two kingdoms we play out very importantly in the early church, and this is significant. But one thing is, is that we have to understand God cannot change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. The old covenant says that Yahweh is a warrior and he is a warrior. Um, he is not was a warrior and is now he's a Santa Claus. He is, he is just as much jealous over his kingdom, his way, as he was in the Old Testament, as he is in the New Covenant, as he will be in judgment on Revelation, as we see in Revelation. The, the, we, so, and we are still called to be soldiers, just like in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. What bothered me was when I began to start to read pacifist literature sometimes, is that you try to um, explain away the old covenant, explain away the wrath of God, explain away judgment, and then explain away revelation too, and try to turn this into this sort of Santa Claus um, pacifism. That's not it. The old covenant is there, and I don't deny any of it. And the new covenant is here, and our, and our Lord is still a warrior. What has changed is the method of our <coughs> armaments, the method of our warfare and our armaments. That has changed. But there's one thing that's really important to understand and not be duped in our, as we read through the whole word of God. Hmm. There's no just war in the Bible. Zero. Hmm. And this is, this is a paradigm shift. And everyone says, ah, wait a minute, what do you mean? What, about, the, the, what we have is very clearly God's judgment and wrath being called upon people. We do have judgments and things like that as far as the law is concerned. And those things should be discussed and how those can be in the new covenant. But the concept that we can look to the Bible and say, oh, we had a just war in the Bible. We don't. The closest we get is Deuteronomy 20. And if you read the whole context, you realize that ain't just war. This is the wrath of God. This is the judgment of God of, upon a people that, that gets called out. And so let me pause you for a second, Dean. Let me pause you because I think we're going to need to explain some of these things for greater context. All right, right. And so... Just war would be different from holy war in yeah, what yeah. way? In what okay, way? So Augustine and some of the other, um, you know, Luther certainly did the same thing. Calvin, all those and people through the centuries have tried to make 
these sort of rules and things of like, this is how we can do warfare in a Christian way. And so, and again, I don't mean just to mock it. They were genuinely trying to do and make some guidelines for that. And so people typically have taken that and, and said with, with people who believe in two kingdoms, believe in Jesus's teachings on this earth, say, oh, you're just ignoring the Old Testament. Don't you see that they had that there? I'm like, no, they didn't. So when you look at that Old Testament and you, and you start to explore that, you're saying, you can see that this is a clear calling of God to, to do these things. And that's a completely different story than what Augustine and, and later are trying to apply that we have the system that today a bunch of kings and a bunch of politicians can get together and, and do things and come up with this just war theory. You know, um, in my, in my, in my testimony, one of the biggest things that got me is I, I went to, um, I went to Berlin twice in my life. Uh, once was when my wife was in basic training and I was there and the Berlin wall at checkpoint, Charlie was all up and everything. And it was, you know, all that with concertina wire and all that. The second time I'll try to put here a picture was, was, was this. Mm. And I came down when the Berlin wall was coming down. Mm. And as I stood there and shook this guy's hand, my wife grabbed that picture. It was amazing. Mm. Um, I walked away from that and saying, so what changed? Mm. How could last year I be called on to shoot this guy? Now he's coming, reaching through here saying, Bruder and Frieden and calling out. And, and I'm saying like, okay, so a few leaders got together and started making some decisions. What did they base this on? Mm. And this was one of the things that began to chip away at me of saying, I've got to know what the word of God is saying in this. And so as I look at that, I see then, so I don't have just where, as Augustine explains it, certainly in the old covenant, I don't certainly have it in the new covenant, in the new Testament, and I don't have it for 300 years of the church, unanimously through different languages, Greek and Latin, different writers, different ones. They just follow Jesus's teaching very literally, very naively until finally we get to when the Roman empire merged with the church under Constantine in, three, in 312 to 325 and all that. Um, at that point, we began to develop this kind of a thinking. But even at the Council of Nicaea, even at the Council of Nicaea, the Ecumenical Council, you can see there it's still being held on to that if you were, you left the church, left the, the battle, or left the army because of Christ and rejoined, you were literally excommunicated for 10 years. And so you still see, interesting, the church wrangling through this for another, for, well, they still do to this day. Right. But right. anyway, so not to which go brings, too far with all that. Which brings us to today, though, right? Like, here we yeah. are, still wrangling with it, right? And there are some groups that, um, you know, maybe prescribe to pacifism or maybe better, you know, articulated, especially for your position, and one that I'm persuaded of is nonviolence or non-resistance, not necessarily pacifism in the sense of do nothing, you know, <clears throat> Um in fact, right. Jesus did command his disciples to flee right. under persecution, you know, um, and to, you know, be willing to sacrifice themselves. But if that brings us to today. What would you tell yourself 30 years ago, someone who's in the military, who's really wrestling with the teachings of Christ, and they're wrestling with this idea of what if he meant every word he said? Or perhaps yeah. someone that's in law enforcement, you know, and there is a lot of good, noble motives 
for these types of things, right? To protect the innocent, to serve people. And I think especially in both vocations, but especially law enforcement, there's a lot that people do in those vocations that aren't necessarily taking the life of other people. You know, some police officers may retire after an entire career and never have shot anyone potentially. But but yet, if you are going to counsel a young man or woman or an old man, an old woman to who, who are in these vocations, who are, who are operating in a specific way in this kingdom of the world, and they're wrestling with the king of this other kingdom, what, what advice would you give them? And what maybe would you point them to, to further wrestle and educate resources, etc.? It's great, great question. I I, uh, I I agree with you. I I, I don't also. I'm I'm very get disappointed sometimes that people who get into two kingdom teachings and non-resistance this type of thing end up with a sort of anti-American, anti-authority kind of a thing. That's not a Christian attitude. We are to pray for our kings. We are to, um, you know, that sh- we shouldn't be the guys that are sitting around with this nasty attitude and all that. So I appreciate that. We also really need to understand that the vast majority of these soldiers throughout time have done this out of love and out of compassion and out of a desire for their homeland and protection, this type of a thing. So we really do need to understand that. Mm. But to each of us and to you and to me and to the soldiers and all of this, I would say this. Start. Jesus puts it in two words. Follow me. Mm. And allow the teachings of Jesus just to start to grow in you mm. and, and, and permeate in you and say, okay, so how are you going to do that? I was, when I was in the army, I was in, uh, in Wales once and I was there talking to Bobby, you know, classic Bobby with the, the stick and all that. Mm. And I was talking to him. This was just, this is the late eighties. And I was, I remember talking to him about the guns and things like that. And he said, you know what? I've never had a gun, been a policeman my whole life, never had a gun. And uh, he said, I have to pull out a whole bunch of paperwork if I pull this stick out, you know. Mm. And he said, I would retire the day they made me do this. It was interesting, completely on his own. I wasn't hitting him with a bunch of non-resistant stuff. But this Bobby in Wales was, was saying that. And so the early church did wrangle with this. You had lots of soldiers who converted to Christianity. Mm. And we see in some of the writings, like the Apostolic Traditions of Hippolytus, written around the year 250, um, even even there saying you can come into the church as a soldier, but you must say, you must say that you will not use uh, lethal force. You must not do those things. And so they were trying to work with that. You see some different stories of, of soldiers. Well, let me, came- let me interrupt you for a second, right? Because I know my astute Bible reader is going to want to counter you and say, well, yeah, yeah, I know about the church traditions and, you know, the apostolic fathers. But, but what would you say to the soldiers in the New Testament, right? You've got you know, Cornelius and Acts, you've got Jesus with a centurion, you've got John the Baptist with a centurion as well. What None of them were told to leave their Roman civil uh, responsibility or vocation as uh, uh, either a governor or a, a soldier or a military person. None of them were told to leave. So therefore, the conclusion would be, right, the argument goes that Clearly, Jesus is okay with this. John the Baptist is okay with this. The early church, Peter was okay with this because he doesn't tell Cornelius, you need to get out of the Roman legion. How would you respond? Yeah, it's a great question and a a really important one. Um, And I wrestled over it a lot myself. Um, I would say that the Cornelius argument and um, and the one that the centurion that came to Jesus argument is, is, is an argument of silence. I mean, we have, 
we know they would have done other things that would have been also uh, wrong to do as a centurion. I mean, almost certainly the centurion was giving praise to the emperor and, and making oaths to the emperor and all this kind of a thing. Probably went to gladiator, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't get any of that, that they were told to stop it. So they were told to stop being idolatrous or whatever. So we, we don't know. It's an argument of science, silence. I would say the most significant one is the one that came to John the Baptist, mm-hmm. because it, when the one that came to John the Baptist, he actually gave some instruction to them about what to do. And so mm-hmm. here we have a little bit of a voice of what they were supposed to do. And he said to them, just don't do violence. Don't you know, be happy with your wages and that kind of a thing. So it would seem to imply that, um, that he uh, didn't have a teaching against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a really important nuance to understand with this whole thing. Um, first of all, we do see in the early church um, them wrestling over um, people that would have positions that didn't require people to kill, but yet still did, did things that were good, building roads or whatever, that type of a thing. And, and that's possible John the Baptist could have said something like that. I, however, I think that's letting us non-resistance guys off the hook a little bit too easy and it's still it's a little bit of an of a, of a uh, argument of silence there's a, a bigger important thing to understand about john the baptist and this is really important is to understand that john the baptist is the last old covenant prophet luke chapter 7 verse 28 says i say to you among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. So we think, wow, that means Elijah, Moses, you know, Elisha, you know, all these guys, John the Baptist, Jesus is saying is top. But interesting, he says, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Matthew eleven eleven gives the same type of a thing. And so, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't preached yet when those, when those, uh, when John was, would have had John those, those teachings, um, they weren't, you know, part of it. And he was part of an old covenant. And so we see that with this new way, this new life, this new che- teaching, of, this new cure for humanity did not come through John the Baptist, did not come. It came ushered in by Jesus Christ. And I think, I think it's an important point to, to make with all this. So I, I totally get that, right? That John the Baptist is still preaching under the old covenant and it's in Jesus and his followers that we see this new ushering in and this this new breaking in of this new kingdom where these two kingdoms are, you know, um, established with different weaponry, right? Um, as Paul would later go on to say that we use these spiritual yeah. weapons. But couldn't it also be argued that it's an argument from silence with Jesus and the centurion, as well as with Peter and Cornelius, that he doesn't tell them to not leave the army or he doesn't tell them to leave the army. So, you know, it's an argument from silence that we would conclude that it's OK. But wouldn't it also be the same in reverse? Couldn't couldn't um, a proponent of just war theory, let's say also say, well, but your argument is one from silence as well, because he doesn't expressly tell them, you know, anything about their, you know, uh, military involvement. So how would you respond to something like that? I agree. I agree. And and, um, I like to own the nuance. I like to understand the tension. Um, And so I, I do think that we have to, neither one of us can put too much weight on an argument of silence. Right. Um, we don't know what they said. We don't know what the teaching. So as it's been my approach then to see, um, what the early church 
practice on this. And this gave me a lot of strength and given me sort of a historical theology hermeneutic that I began to see what the early Christians did before there was this Christendom and for this thing. And, and it's interesting, like this particular point, let me read you a quote again from um, Tertullian. Uh, so, oops, I just lost it. Uh, here we go. Um, he says, but now inquiry is made about this point, whether a believer may turn himself unto military service and whether the military may be admitted unto the faith, even the rank and file or each inferior grade to whom there is no necessity for taking part in sacrifices or capital punishment. But how will a Christian, and then he answers, but how will a Christian man war? Nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword, which the Lord has taken away? For albeit soldiers has come unto John and had received the formula of their rule, albeit likewise a centurion had believed, still the Lord afterward in disarming Peter disarmed every soldier. Um, and so the, the, it's interesting. Again, it's not the word of God, but right. we're taking some, some, some uh, uh, we have a very clear teaching of Jesus. So that's God came down, preached, gave us some things. There it is. So now we're taking these other passages and say, okay, that's awfully strong, Jesus. Can I weaken it over here or can I strengthen it over here? These arguments are kind of still arguments of silence. So I'm still stuck with Jesus's command. Then I go to see what the early church did. And it seems unanimously right. that they held this view uh, in a very innocent way of, of looking at Jesus's teachings. And you're talking about right now a historical hermeneutic through the first few centuries of, of Christianity and the Christian writers that we have, which I think to me, as I've wrestled through this, really just ends up being a cherry on top. Like I think, oh, well, that's kind of a nice little extra, you know, piece of weight in the argument. Yeah. But for me, the way that I've worked through the New Testament is that even though there is an argument from silence to be made in either direction for Jesus with um, a military man in the Roman legion and also for Cornelius who comes to Peter. The things that I, the way that I sort of interpret that is through other clearer passages in the New Testament, right? Where yeah. Jesus clearly yeah. teaches, love your enemies. And then he clearly lives that teaching out when he offers yeah. up his own life. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe Jesus is unique and special in that because he had to yeah. become the atoning sacrifice. He was a sacrificial lamb. Maybe that's not right. really for us. You know, maybe that was just for him to do. But then I see how he instructed and how he dealt with his followers in that even in that very moment. Right. And then how his own followers interpreted that over the next few decades in their writings. I'm thinking of Paul and Peter in particular, yeah, where yeah, Paul says, yeah. hey, I, I used to be a violent man, you know, unworthy. Yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, now we fight with spiritual weapons, you know, not the weapons of this world. Peter would later go on to say that Christ left us an example that we should follow him and suffer Amen. even at Amen. the hands of evil. And I go. Yeah. Wow, Tertullian is kind of a cherry on top, but it's all right there in the New Testament, you know, like Amen. it's all really there. And, uh, you know, sure, I guess it would be nice if, you know, the, you know, Luke and Acts just wrote clearly and Peter told Cornelius, quit your job, you know, like, yeah, that would kind of cinch the deal, I guess. But there is some nuance and we do have to lean into that tension. And, you know, I've had the, the honor and privilege of being able to proclaim the gospel and sit down and study the scriptures with 
uh, men and women who are in law enforcement, who are in the military and try to help wrestle through these things. And it's difficult teachings. And I, I want to encourage those that are maybe listening that this is like you said, the seed, the leaven, this is something that we've got to wrestle with, you know? Yeah. And I don't want to be the one to make some sort of dogmatic blanket statement or judgment, but rather just to hold up the word of God. This is kind of what I do. Like, I'm just going to try to hide behind this, you know? Yeah. 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 That's it. And trust that just like you and I, if you wrestle with this thing, it's going to mess you up. It might even make your life be weird and look weird. You know, I remember the first time I heard David Berceau talk about his own sort of conversion from sort of a mainstream American Christian ideology to these radical positions that were being informed and influenced by the word of God, you know, and I was like, dude, I thought I was radical. I was like, whoa, man, like I never even thought about that. Watching football because it's so violent. I was like, whoa, you trampled on some sacred cows right now, man. (laughs) And uh, so anyways, I I just think, you know, the humble thing for me and for all of us, right, is to, is to, to genuinely and authentically and humbly wrestle with God that there are two kingdoms, right? And we're constantly right. in tension and at war in yeah. ourselves for yes. which kingdom we're going to surrender and submit to, right? And this, I believe, is Paul in Romans 7, that, you know, we, we constantly are in conflict, our right. flesh and the spirit, our flesh that wants the kingdom of the world and the spirit yeah. that wants us to submit to the king of a totally different kingdom. And so I yeah. want to recognize the difficulty Right. And not not trivialize or oversimplify things, because it's one thing to talk about it in theory and to yeah. hypothesize theology and to read things right. like Tertullian. Right. It's, it's another right. thing to go. What would I do in this situation if someone, no, you, um, you know, like they're too they And so I think for me, I have seen that's where a lot of the breakdown happens is that like taking the theory and the hypothetical. And then actualizing it into my real life. Am I going to keep this job? Will I keep this gun, etc.? That's a very good point. And one of the things that's really weak spot on non-resistant people sometimes is, you know, okay, so great. So you're living here in America and you're just enjoying the the cheap price of sneakers while all these boys go out and, you know, fight for for the the causes and everything. Um, We must continue to be warriors in this new kingdom. And so we have come up with a motto here at, at, uh, at Sattler College. When we talk about the different people who would say just enough blood for this or just, but we have a model. It's no blood, but our own. Mm. And so we do feel we need to call, go forward to the nations, be the, the bring peacemakers to the places of conflict and to address those things. But we will only shed our own blood as we will do that. But we are willing to do that. And that's the wow. call of Jesus Christ, not to just sit here and be passive. Right. No, wow. it's called to go forward and to, wow. and to give these teachings to the whole world. And in that way, may we be able to really love our enemies. No blood, yeah. but our own. Yeah. Dean, thank yeah. you so much for taking the time here today. I really appreciate this conversation and hopefully look forward to even more conversations in the future. May God really bless you and your work as you are trying to help through Sattler College and through the church that you're a part of there in the Boston area. If someone wanted to dive in further or get more connected with you or other folks in this area, where would you point them? Hey, come to Sattler College. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Nine months. 
we have a nine-month program that just studies just uh, Bible, and you'd, you'd be able to take my historical theology one and two classes. You'd also study biblical Hebrew, biblical Greek, uh, church doctrines, and to be looking at the early church. Um, I also would would recommend Scroll Publishing, and he had uh, Dave Rousseau's books I found while I was a soldier in the army. Hmm. And then I would mostly, of all anything, is to then open up the New Testament to Jesus Christ and just say, "Hey, this let's let's just start today." Let's just practice a little bit of putting these things into practice and see what God will do. And also, I would encourage you, any of the readings of the early Christians would be uh, very edifying for you. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Dean. I'm really grateful and look forward to more fruitful conversations in the future. Amen. Let's just see you, John. Uh, It's it's a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.